0: This is Politics Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. Josh Barrow is a former radio host and senior editor at Business Insider. He's now host of the Very Serious podcast. We talk to him about the economy, about politics, and about the relationship between those things, how inflation is impacting people's lives, how government spending and policies throughout the COVID pandemic have and haven't influenced inflation, and importantly, how all of that impacts people's experiences and political attitudes, from voters all the way up to congressional leadership. As a quick reminder, this conversation, like all of our conversations, was taped 100% live with the community listening in. Anyone who wants to can join and ask our guests a question. We welcome voices from across the political spectrum. Our one rule is to keep it civil. For information on how to join us, past episodes, and our best of email newsletter, please visit our website, pm101.live. If you like what you hear, please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now to make sure you don't miss our next episode on Monday, which will feature Parker Malloy, who's a writer, blogger, and transgender activist. Without further ado, let's roll the tape.
1: With your podcast and your Substack, what Mm -hmm. lane are you filling and what content do you intend to bring to people? Well, I I write
2: about politics and the economy, as I've I've always done, and I I think a strong suit for me is is drawing links between the two of them um, and writing about, you know, obviously inflation is an enormous story this year, labor shortages, um, some of the key legislation that I think we're going to talk about, including Build Back Better, would have large economic effects. And so I write about the interplay between that and politics. Uh, from a perspective that's pretty close to the political center. I am a Democrat now, um, but I'm I'm more of a centrist Democrat. Um, and then with the the podcast, the Very Serious Podcast, uh, it's sort of, you know, I, I, for seven years, I was the host of Left, Right, and Center, uh, which is a, a weekly political chat show from KCRW, uh, which actually, that's a show with a 25-year history. It goes back all the way. Ariana Huffington was the conservative panelist on Left, Right, and Center when it launched back in 1996. Um, and so I spent the last seven years... Trying to moderate useful conversations across the political spectrum um, with people actually engaging the arguments from the other side, trying to understand what the what the nature of their disagreements is or disagreements are. Um, And I think we did a very good job of that. Uh, But what I and and Sarah Faye, who's the producer of uh, Very Serious and the editor of Very Serious Newsletter, Um, We wanted to be able to take that sort of approach where you actually instead of, you know, so much of what you hear right now is one of two things. It's either people who all agree with each other sitting around telling each other how right they are about anything and nobody learns anything listening to that. Um, Or it's sort of an inane shouting match um, of the sort that, you know, I mean, especially you used to see more of on CNN. CNN has moved more in the MSNBC type direction of everybody agreeing with each other all the time. Um, So we're trying to have real substantive disagreements that that are civilized um, and that are clarifying. Um, But the goal of the very serious podcast is to sort of step back from news of the week and try to understand some of the moral or uh, or analytical controversies that drive the reasons that Americans have big differences on the major political issues of the day to do with the economy, to do with COVID, to do with crime, all, all sorts of things like that. I did a show a couple of weeks ago talking with a Republican and Democratic pollster uh, about how to measure public opinion accurately, especially about issues, because you have all these interest groups in Washington and New York waving around opinion research saying, see, everyone agrees with us. You should do the thing we want to do. Um, But you can basically write an opinion survey to produce whatever result you want. So we had a useful conversation basically about how to look at any of that research, figure out whether it's valid, figure out what the public actually thinks about issues so you can even start thinking about whether what a politician Is doing is popular or unpopular? Um, We did another issue talking. We we did another uh, episode talking with Tom Nichols uh, and Lonnie Chen about basically what experts are for. I think you know the last two years has been a strained time for the relationship between experts and the public. Um, And I think part of that, there's blame to go around on both sides, and part of it is we've really misconceived the purpose of expertise. Experts tell you what might happen if you do certain things, um, and you know sometimes they get that right and sometimes they get that wrong. But then politicians need to combine that expert advice with value judgments.
1: I did want to dig into something you just said. So for years and years and years and years, you had Republicans decrying not only expertise but government. Um, Mm -hmm. from the base of the voters, from the Tea Party movement, all the way on up from Mm -hmm. the financial crash. And that then turned into people on the right mostly these leaders, decrying academia. They were just throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So from your experience talking to all these different people with different ideologies, how much do you blame for the death of expertise and people not listening to experts in the pandemic or whatever example you want to use on the Republicans trying to act expeditiously politically and ripping apart our social fabric or on the experts themselves for, as you just said, having too wide of a mandate.
2: I think there's been two sides of that polarization where I think Republicans have rejected expertise in some cases because the the expert opinion is inconvenient. Um, And the expert, even if the expert's not telling you what to do, they might tell you, you know, well, this tax plan is going to increase the budget deficit. Um, Or, you know, if you lift all the COVID restrictions after two weeks or a month, President Trump, you're just going to have another wave come back that's crazy in the summer. Um, and so I think Republicans have absolutely rejected some of that expertise because they don't feel like saying, you know, well, we understand this is going to happen, but we because it is too costly or because it's too disruptive, we think we should let this fly anyway. Instead, so they basically pretend the expertise not, isn't there. Um, I think that's been a really bad thing. Um, But I also think that, you know, the some of the expertism from the Democratic side, those two things have fed into each other because of the because the Republicans have rejected the expertise. Democrats have in some in some cases treated experts as though they were priests, um, treated this um, treated science as a religion. It's almost like science with a capital S. And so I think both of those are dysfunctions. Um, I think, you know, probably on balance, the Republican dysfunction is worse um, but I think that there have been, you know, real serious drawbacks to the combination of Democratic veneration of experts and experts accepting the invitation to step outside their bounds. It also comes from members of the public um, who, in some cases, don't want to take responsibility for cost-benefit judgments for themselves, things that aren't public policy but that are their own, you know, choices about what what matters in their lives and how to address risk day-to-day in their lives.
1: I want to kind of transition this discussion on expertise and not really get into the partisan nature of mm. the topic but experts maybe being disconnected because I think it's a great segue to what you just said. We've mm. had Jamie Diamond who I think we we we'd agree that he's a financial expert, right? Jamie Diamond of
2: JP Morgan? Yeah. Yes. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, he, he he recently said, and I don't want to butcher his quote, but basically the economic standing of everyday normal people is the best it's been in 50 years. If you look at the money they have to spend, their balance sheets – and the way that the economy is going. And then we've heard a lot of other financial experts talk about the Biden boom. But on your podcast with these pollsters, they were saying that one of the biggest issues moving forward for everyday Americans, not Republicans, not Democrats, Josh, is Mm -hmm. inflation. So Mm -hmm. what kind of disconnect is there between the macro economy and what people are experiencing in their everyday lives? I don't think there is a disconnect. I mean, I think
2: it's telling that in that quote from Jamie Dimon that he refers to balance sheets. Balance sheets are in great shape. Um, And so that's actually part of what's fueled the inflation. People have money around to spend on things also, I mean, from his perspective as a banker, um, you know, it's very different from 2007, where we saw all sorts of households overlevered in a way that made them extremely vulnerable to the fall in home prices that, tr- that triggered the Great Recession. So household balance sheets, you know, debt to debt to asset ratios and that sort of thing. Those do look quite good, but that doesn't pick up inflation. What I think Americans are seeing and are upset about is for most for most people who are working, real, their real incomes have fallen in the last year. Because their wage or salary increase has not kept up with inflation so even though they have money in the bank they don't feel like they are I mean they don't feel like they're making as much money as they used to because they literally aren't in real terms their their incomes have gone down I don't think it's a disconnect at all I think there are positive aspects of the economy and there are also significant negative aspects of the economy and people are just more focused on Some of those negative ones, which I think is normal. The number one thing I think people care about is, you know, am I am I better off than I was four years ago? Am I making more money than I used to make? And for most people, over the last year, the answer to that is no, and they're upset.
1: Inflation is up to its highest level in four decades. The consumer price index climbed
2: 0.6% in January. This means the average cost of goods has skyrocketed by 7.5% from the same time last year. It's the highest level of inflation the U.S. has experienced in 40 years. The latest numbers reinforce the Federal Reserve's position to raise interest rates in the near future. Not all the news is bad
0: feel like it's something that was kind of expected after the pandemic.
2: I'm not a frugal guy. But I just saw the prices. My, my favorite milk go up in a week. Now it's like $4, $5 a gallon.
1: How much of an impact did policymakers from the left and the right just spending and I think the correct term is shitloads of money over Mm -hmm. the last two years to just create a fire hose and spray all this money everywhere throughout the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, How much has that contributed to inflation? And Josh, this is really an age-old debate. Mm -hmm. Has this finally put the rest to the modern monetary theory policy? Has it put it to bed and shown that it doesn't work?
2: Well, so I mean – Fiscal policy has absolutely been inflationary. You know, we, we we as you note, putting all this money out in combination with the monetary steps that the Fed took that also injected a lot of money into the economy. Um, yeah, that's been a driver of the inflation that we've seen in the last year. Now, I would note that doesn't mean the policies were a mistake. I, I think, you know, in retrospect, the American Rescue Plan, the the bill that passed at the early in 2021 with the with the subsequent round of, of stimulus spending. I think in retrospect, you would say maybe that should have been somewhat smaller than it was, but we were guessing at that time about what the economic trajectory would be over the next year. And while we overshot a little bit, and that's created more inflation than we wanted, there would have been really serious costs to undershooting. Basically, instead of inflation, we would be dealing with elevated unemployment and slower economic growth. And I think those would be a worse set of problems than inflation. So I think, you know, when I say that the policies have been inflationary, that doesn't mean they've largely been a mistake. I think they could have been fine-tuned a little bit, but mostly the government did a very good job in both the Trump and the Biden administrations with that economic response that really did support the economy and has allowed for a very fast trajectory of economic growth out of of the crisis. So I think that's that's largely been a success story. Um, And, you know, the Addressing the inflation has two parts. One is the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates and some of that is already getting priced into interest rate markets. The expectation that the Fed is going to be doing a significant amount of that over the next year plus. And then as the Biden administration likes to talk about, um, you can also deal with inflation by increasing the productive capacity of the economy. The problem is that that is hard. Everyone wants to increase the productive capacity of the economy all the time. And there's, you know, there's little things you can do you can change the, the way that the Port of Long Beach operates so that you can move more product through. Um, I really think the administration should be working harder on getting um, visa issuances back up to a more normal level. They, they fell under Trump before the, crisis, before the COVID crisis, and they really fell off a cliff during COVID. Way fewer people are coming to the United States, well, for uh, any purpose, but including to work. Um, and that's been a significant driver of the labor shortage. That's been inflationary. So I would love to see them focus more on that. So I don't think the inflation effects from Build Back Better or from the Infrastructure Bill are likely to be large in either direction, and you can't claw back the money that was spent in the American Rescue Plan. So it's sort of it's an interesting fact that we passed some laws that were inflationary, but that doesn't really tell you very much about what to do about inflation, unfortunately. But I mean, that's a long way of saying yes, fiscal policy has been a key driver of this inflation.
1: No, I do appreciate that, and you just hit yeah. on we're going next with the Build Back Better policy. There's been arguments, like you said, that it's going to cause inflation to skyrocket. You just kind of very succinctly dispelled that. Yeah. Digging into this a little bit further regarding the Build Back Better program, when we're looking at these programs, the way these things are scored, it's very unlikely that it will be net neutral if you Project the policies out to 10 years. And this is something Joe Manchin had mentioned. It will ultimately add to the deficit. So, when we're looking at government spending over a long term, and Mm -hmm. when you have to take into consideration that maybe both parties won't want to maintain those raised taxes, how should we balance policies? And we can get into these specific policies in a second, but broadly Mm -hmm. speaking, Everybody talks about the deficit. How should we balance policies that spend money to cut down on income inequality and increase quality of living with the increase in the deficit that will likely happen?
2: I'm not terribly concerned about the budget deficit. I'm much more concerned about whether the Build Back Better programs are designed to be effective and to spend money well. And that's something that that we can get into. But, you know, I mean, interest rates are still very low. Um, there will be a significant revenue offset, presumably, um, in any version of this bill that that gets passed. So even if it's not fully offset, I I would expect a significant majority of the spending uh, to be offset with New revenues, especially because that seems to be a key fixation of Joe Manchin's. He doesn't like all that budget gimmickry, uh, and whatever gets done, he wants to be you know closer to being a true um, you know non-deficit impact piece of legislation. So I'm not uh, um, I'm not that concerned about that. And the other thing is, you know, deficit spending is inflationary if the Fed does not offset it. Um, but the Fed can react to higher deficit spending by raising interest rates more than it otherwise would, and you get no net in- impact on inflation.
1: Well, what are some examples, programs at ART as well?
2: So, I mean, I, my, my biggest concern is the childcare subsidy. Basically, what it would do is the bill proposes a, a large new subsidy for sending your kid to daycare that's structured very similarly to the Obamacare subsidy for health insurance. So you would get you would get a voucher to send your kid to subsidized daycare. What you would pay would be limited as a percentage of your income. I think I think it's eight percent or eight and a half percent. I'd have to go look. Um, so it's a sliding scale. The, the higher your income, the, the the more you pay for it. The problem is that this it would create a huge increase in demand for center based childcare. Um, Because you would be giving people a big subsidy for it. And at the same time, the government would seek to impose new requirements on the on those centers that provide daycare, they would have to hire more educated staff, they would have to pay them higher wages. Um, so it's, you know, you, you can see you're coming at it from both sides, you are creating additional demand, and you're making it more difficult to provide the supply and you're pushing the price up all at the same time. And so I think what you would be likely to to experience once you put that law into effect is you'd hand people a lot of these vouchers, and they would find that there is no space available to put their child because there isn't enough capacity in these programs. It also has a phase-in over a number of years. So a lot of middle-income families during the phase-in would get no voucher. And so they would be bidding for Daycare, which if they're already paying for it, it would become more expensive because the day, daycare centers would face more of these requirements, and they would have more customers bidding on the spaces. Um, and so I, you would you would end up with a lot of people uh, basically finding it actually more difficult to get childcare than they are now. And I think it also creates a, a pretty questionable policy goal, which is to say that children specifically should be in center based childcare um, rather than. Giving families money, which is something else the bill would do, which I think is a much better approach, um, and letting them decide: does one parent want to work fewer hours or not at all to stay home and raise kids? Do you want some relative to 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 look after the kids during the day, like a grandparent, and you can give some of that money to the grandparent? Um, It's basically strongly preferring center-based care over those those decisions. When I really think it should be left up to families to decide how to make those decisions, and if families don't have enough money, what you should just do do is give them money.
1: I have a question here. You hit on increasing visas, a previous answer. Americans and our country has a declining birth rate, which is a major problem for the economy.
2: Mm. But
1: from a perspective of promoting people in our generation, millennials, to have kids when everybody's looking at the cost of housing, inflation's rising, and just starting a family is not really in people's plans because of economic concerns. In addition to just giving people money, are there any policies that don't, they don't have to be in Build Back Better, but any policies that you would advocate for to try and basically make having a family easier financially on people?
2: Well, I I think there's two separate questions here. I mean, if your goal is to increase the birth rate, my sense is that very few
1: of these policies
2: do very much to do that. Um, That people's Decisions about whether to have children are not as you know are, are just not that much driven by how large a tax credit am I going to get when I have a child, um, and you know we we see this in, in countries around the world. You have policy efforts that are explicitly aimed at at uh, at increasing the birth rate. They don't seem to work very well now. Making it easier for families with children to afford the things they need is a perfectly valuable goal, even if it's not going to cause people to have more children. And, you know, my view, as I say, is that the best thing to do with that is to give people unrestricted money because they have a better sense of what will help their family than the government does, you know, trying to to program and say, well, we think families specifically should be consuming more center-based daycare or whatever.
1: So I just want to ask two questions or or maybe, yeah, two questions, and then we'll go to the audience about Adams. You've tweeted about him a lot, and I follow you on Twitter. <laughs> so yeah. during time of heightened concern and rising crime rates, this mayor had a different approach to this controversial topic, and he deemed it as a radically practical approach. I'm wondering if you could kind of get into not only what that is, but what you like about it.
2: Well, I mean, I, I think he has had a very clear talking point about crime in New York, which is basically that we need police and we need the police to be better. Um, and I think that's a a very common sense construction. And I think it's something that you see. Yeah, I mean, it, it used to be something that you saw all the time from Democratic politicians. And I think it's still, you know, that, the, you know, you, you sc- scratch a Democrat who's actually in office. And in most cases, this is the position they're taking, you know, the, the fashion, For the idea that we were going to implement some sort of defund thing, you saw moves in that direction in Minneapolis and Seattle, and there were political disasters, and uh, you've you've really had a a pullback from that. Um, But I think Adam says, you know, first of all, he's the mayor of New York, which is the most prominent municipal position in the country. He also has a very unique biography because he was a captain in the NYPD, but one who was sort of on the outs with department brass, he was a you know he was a public activist even while he was uh, a, a captain in the police department, um, really pushing internally for reform in the police department, and I think that gives him a lot of credibility with communities in New York. Both that you know he understands the importance of policing, defunding is not popular in New York City, but he also understands that the NYPD can sometimes you know that officers can act badly, and that you do need. You need reforms and you need supervision to ensure that people that, that the officers are not abusive to the public. And it goes all the way back to when he was a teenager. The the story that he tells about deciding to become a cop because he and people in his community were dissatisfied about the way that NYPD cops were tr- were treating them, and basically that if you had more. Uh, black people from New York City who had grown up uh, in heavily policed neighborhoods, if, the, if they were in the NYPD, that that would be a way to change it from the inside. Um, so I think I think he has a lot of credibility on that. And the line that he has taken on that, I think, is a very popular one, one that politicians around the country could learn something from the, the frank way that he talks about that.
1: Josh, we're going to go to the best part here. We're going to try and squeeze in 25 minutes of audience questions. So your readers are going to ask you questions. We will go to Kelly Aram and then to Rachel. Uh, Kelly, over to you.
2: Post-Trump, it seemed as though um, there was a real opportunity for Democrats to pick up a lot of independent votes, probably a lot of moderate or at least some moderate Republican votes. Um, obviously polling has shown that that opportunity probably has largely been lost, at least for now. What kind of a world could we have been living in or what would be different from what we're looking at right now? Had Biden maintained a focus on maybe the base or the more moderate, uh, Democrats or independent voters rather than, uh, driving home such a progressive message, do you think we'd be in a different position? Well, so, I mean, I, I think, you know, the main problem for Biden has been that, you know, with Delta and Omicron, uh, the the virus took a very different turn and sort of the, you know, I think the hope as of April was basically that we declare victory, we move on back to normal, et cetera. Um, external events prevented that and people are unhappy about it. Um, and I think that there are aspects of that that the administration could have messaged better, but fundamentally that was bad luck. Um, and then similarly, I think the inflation has been a problem. And we talked about some of the drivers of that. There's some blame to go with the president, but it, that's mostly stuff either that was inevitable or the choices that they made that were inflationary. We would, we would have had even, even, we would have had other different, worse economic problems if we hadn't made the inflationary choices. So I think, you know, the, the main thing dragging down his popularity is not a choice to move too far to the left. The main thing dragging down his popularity is these external events that in some cases he has not looked as on top of as he should. Um, I think, the, you know, the, the Build Back Better, is not unpopular in terms of where he has failed to stand up to the left. It's more that he's failed to stand up to individual interest groups with an interest in pieces that build back better. The thing that delayed getting something that Joe Manchin would agree to was they had to take some stuff out of the bill and nobody wanted to be the bad guy and say, we're not going to do the childcare subsidy or we're not going to do some, you know, some component of the, of the environmental part or whatever. But I think the main thing, the main problem for Biden has been this bad luck on virus and the economy. And the main thing he can do about it is show how focused he is on getting back to normal, getting inflation down, that sort of stuff. Um, and so that's, that's where I would keep the public messaging. It doesn't mean they have to give up hope on some
1: version of Build Back Better. We're going to go to Aram. Aram, over to you.
2: Thanks, Justin. and Thanks, Josh, for being here. I guess my question is this. You know, we've seen two extremely effective, whatever you think of their politics, politicians or leaders in Congress between Pelosi and McConnell. Mm -hmm. And and I personally think two of the other two are are two of quite possibly the worst in living memory. Mm Um particularly Schumer, I know you kind of called out, and I was wondering if you yeah. could kind of go into just how bad he is, not just in legislation recently and how he's managed the Senate outside of you know getting some judicial nominations through, but also yeah. the spectacular failure of his chosen candidates in the previous election. Thanks. Um, so i'm I'm not sure what you're referring to in, oh, you mean Cal Cunningham and that sort of thing? Yeah, Cunningham Gideon, think... there was there was a bunch of ones that failed spectacularly. So I'm so uh, let me take that last part first. I don't think anybody knew Cal Cunningham was having that affair. First of all, Um, and I also I don't think the candidate selection affected the outcome of any of those races. I think that generic Democrat also would have ended up losing that North Carolina race. I mean, Trump won North Carolina. The Senate map where you were trying to win the Senate seat in North Carolina was premised on the idea that Joe Biden might win North Carolina, which he might have if the polls had been accurate and he'd been ahead by as much as it looked like in the polls. I don't blame Chuck Schumer uh, for those for candidate selection there. But in terms of running the Senate, yeah, it sounds like you read the Wednesday issue of, of the Very Serious Newsletter from last week where I talked about how uh, Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi are doing their jobs well. Um, and Republican House leadership has been a huge mess for years and years. And Chuck Schumer has been making these inexplicable choices. Um, both, you know, it's really it's really his fault that they didn't get a Build Back Better bill um, that was acceptable to Joe Manchin. It's his job as the Senate Democratic leader to make sure that a version of that legislation that can get fifty votes gets to the floor in the Senate, and Joe Manchin laid out these specifications um, basically about you know with the size of the bill and how it had to you know actually run over the full ten year span and had to be fully paid for over that period and not have these budget gimmicks in it. And they just ignored that and they put out a bill that had that was full of budget gimmicks because that allowed them to leave some version of each of the key programs and the childcare people and the pre-K people and the environment people and all of, that everyone would get what they wanted and Chuck Schumer wouldn't have to tell any of them no. And I think basically, and you know, Matt Iglesias also wrote about this recently, and sort of and he created a situation where instead of you know some of those groups would be mad at him because he would have to tell them that they're out of build back better, he created a situation where all the groups are mad at Joe Manchin, but they're not. Not mad at Chuck Schumer personally. I don't know whether you know he's concerned about a primary challenge. I don't. Chuck Schumer is a very good retail politician in New York. He would always do these Sunday morning press conferences about some local picky issue. He's sort of ubiquitous. The line was that there's no more pl- dangerous place in Washington than between Chuck Schumer and a microphone. So I don't think he actually needs to worry about losing a primary. But he's behaving like someone who's afraid of his left flank, afraid of these progressive groups. And his number one goal is to show them that whatever happened isn't his fault. And I think that's been really deleterious to the party. So, yeah, I share your frustration with Chuck Schumer, but not over the candidate selection.
1: I just want to give you a big amen. And here he, here he. I agree totally. We can go back (laughs) to the government shutdown over immigration. And how he folded like a cheap suit. It seems like what you just pointed out, and I'm not going to go into this now, but we were negotiating with him when I was appointed official for the government of Puerto Rico on Hurricane Maria Mm. issues. And he was very underwhelming. And it seems to me like he just doesn't have the strategic chops and he goes into things head first and then tries to figure it out later. Really reminds me like of Mark Meadows from my experience with him in the house. Hmm. But Great job, Josh. I just wanted to agree because um, I think he's doing the party a disservice. So, And it's
2: also funny because usually the sort of people who become leaders are people like Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell who seem to be in it. To to run the party, to act on the interests of the party, and to act as a fundamentally national politician, and so you know the neither of them seems to care about whether people like them, and also I think it's not a coincidence that McConnell and Reid both had frequent intra party trouble, especially McConnell, um, where you know he had people attacking him from from his right all the time, um, but McConnell doesn't lose primaries because of that, and McConnell has the confidence to know uh, that he is you know that. The, that he's not going to, um, that, that, that he can let some Republicans be mad at him and still win elections. Schumer doesn't seem to have that, uh, th- doesn't seem to have that uh, in him yet.
1: And just to riff off of that, I think that Schumer and McCarthy are very similar in that there was a leadership vacuum in the Republican mm-hmm. House and a very big leadership vacuum in the Democratic Senate, at least with mm-hmm. people who were ready and had the coalitions to be able to win that seat.
2: Well, I mean, you know, I mean, Dick Durbin wanted to be leader, right? I would, I, I don't, I don't have a really strong opinion about Dick Durbin, but I mean, you know, he certainly was qualified on paper. He'd been the whip for a long time, um, so I, I mean, you might, you might have a stronger opinion about Durbin than I do. But I mean, that it cer- certainly, he was someone who was available to do this job instead. He,
1: he was. It's just again, you got to win those coalitions, right? I don't need to tell you about that. I really like him. I think that he's strong and a good strategic thinker. That's all we
0: have for you today. Again, huge thanks to Josh for coming out, to our listeners for their questions, and to you for being here. As a quick reminder, this conversation, like all of our conversations, was taped 100% live. Anyone who wants to can join us to ask our guests a question. We welcome voices from across the political spectrum. Our one rule is to keep it civil. For information on how to join us, past episodes, or to sign up for our email newsletter, which will deliver our best of directly to your inbox twice per month, please visit our website, pm101.live. If you like what you hear, please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now to make sure you don't miss our next episode on Monday on Monday. Parker Malloy, who's a writer, blogger, and transgender activist. This has been Politics Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of Justin Higgins, our co-founder and our team, thank you very much for being here. We hope to see you and hear from you soon.